Our episode with Adirondack author Lawrence Gooley starts in just a few seconds. This is Bob Cudmore reminding you I've started a GoFundMe campaign to help support this audio podcast series, The Historians. Any amount, no matter how small, would be appreciated. You can link to my podcast page and continue to GoFundMe at Bob Cudmore slash The Historians. If you're not comfortable with an online payment, you could send a check to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And now, on with the show. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Lawrence Gooley joins us, author of many books related to Adirondack and North Country history. Hello, Larry. How are you? Oh, I'm pretty good today. How many books have you written? Well, um, 18 in all, um, technically. Uh, Two of them were uh, reprints of earlier editions, um, but a lot of added information, and they are considered new books in themselves. So 18 is technically the total. How long have you been at this? Well, uh, my first one actually came out back in 1980, but raising a family um, full-time and going to my kids' sports and never missing anything, I, I just collected research as I could over the years, and we finally revived it all in um, uh, 2004. Mm-hmm. And today, are, are you pretty much making your living with, with your activities involving uh, writing and other things uh, having to do with the Adirondacks? Yes, uh, my partner and I, Jill Jones, that's uh, how we've been making our living through publishing my own works and selling them and publishing for others as well. And we do editing projects and things like that. That's an interesting topic to me. and We'll get to it in a moment. But I was really impressed when you did a speech in Fulton County, not that long ago, I believe the sheriff up there, uh, Thomas Laurie, uh, wanted to have you come talk, because one of your uh, best-known books is, uh, I would have to say, uh, the definitive account of uh, the serial killer Robert F. Garrow, a book called Terror in the Adirondacks. I mean, this is obviously uh, an important topic, one that affected a lot of people, scared the pants off a lot of the people in the in the Adirondacks for many years, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway. Why did you uh, do a book on this topic? Well, there's actually a personal angle to it. Um, at about the time Garrow was being hunted, I was in my late teens, and um, I, from where I live way up north, I could see the mountains. I absolutely loved the views, and I could not wait to be a climber. So I had just really begun climbing, and I was going wild with it, going everywhere, and just really enjoying being in the woods, and if you'd meet someone, you knew they were like-minded. And when the Garrow thing happened, we were suddenly warned to stay out of the woods. And, you know, I was, you know, tough guy, a weightlifter and everything. So I I just kept going. But I did start to carry a weapon because you never knew who you were going to meet out there. And and it always stuck with me. Uh, I didn't know the whole story on Garrow and always angry that he ruined it for me, that if you met someone a couple of miles in on the trail, you would greet them and know that they were just like you. They just loved the outdoors. And after Garrow did his thing, it was more like always glancing over my shoulder to see who it was and to make sure I was safe. Mm. It just you know, made everything at least a little bit uncomfortable because you realize you never know. Yeah, I, I can understand that. And I, uh, from, from members of my family, before we started this interview, I was kidding with my uh, colleague, uh, Dave Green. He said, well, what, what's this man done? I said, well, you know, I think he's, he's really been an outdoorsman, hiked, biked, climbed, canoed. I said, a lot like me. 
which is stupid because I, I don't do any of those things. I'm the <clears throat> consummate indoors man. But my uh, son-in-law and my daughter, they, they've done a lot of uh, hiking. And that's the ex their, most of their experience on the trail is what you first described. It's often, a, you know, a, a friendly or a non-threatening kind of encounters with other people. Yes, and even if even if you're not religious, there's um, a spiritual aspect to it. You you just until you sit on top of a mountain all by yourself, maybe watch a sunrise or something. It's just it's something you have to experience to to say I get it. This is this is really something unusual. And uh, you know I didn't want that ruined for me at the time, but but it certainly did uh, impact it. Hmm. Well, let's let me ask you about uh, Robert Garrow, and again. Uh, that uh, talk you did up in Fulton County, imagine you remember it. You had a packed house for that, right? Uh, it, it was amazing because we know that on events where you might be, you might be at a time where you're opposite on a Sunday, you might be opposite the NFL or NASCAR or something, and, you know, a lot of North Country fans for those sports. And yet uh, we had drawn 150 and over 250 at another place. So we thought, you know, that was about the best it's ever going to be. But at, at Fulton County, it was just amazing. They They said... They believe there were over 300 there. The, the whole building was packed. Now, Robert Garrow, born 1936, uh, up in the North Country, correct? And, and was an abused child? Yes, uh, yeah, a terribly abused child. Yeah, he was actually, when I, when I began researching it, I didn't realize that he was actually born up here in the, in, uh, near Dannemora Prison, actually, not very far away from there. Um, and, he, there's actually uh, a, a second Robert Garrow who grew up a few miles away, who's been a North Country hero. So I often get asked that question about what's the relationship, because we did a book for the second Robert Garrow about uh, North Country baseball. Mm -hmm. But the original, uh, the serial killer, was actually born up here in the North. But, but are they related in any way? Or? No, it just happens to be a, a very common name up here. It's a variation of Giro and Giro. There's many French pronunciations of it. Now, the man who became the serial killer, Robert Garrow, first was convicted, was he not, or captured for some rapes? Well, he was, he was suspected in some of them, actually. Uh, early on in his criminal career, back um, around 1960, he was caught in the Albany area, and he was sent, what I would say, sort of sent home to Dannemora Prison. And, it, you know, it was possible then we would never hear from this man again, which would have been great for everyone. But he served time in Dannemora and then managed to manipulate the system and get himself moved. And eventually, crimes happened again when he was released. Mm -hmm. And um, among his victims were, as you described the, the scenario uh, that caused so much fear, there were some campers uh, near, near Speculator that, uh, that apparently he killed. Yes, he, um, he had this habit of tying people up and um, some of the ones he killed were tied up and one at least if you see the autopsy photos and things like that you can tell it was really an execution it wasn't a furious stabbing or anything it was it was a methodical thing mm. and very, very these disturbing. were what you would call or I don't know maybe that's not the right term I'm going to use but random acts of violence it's not that he knew these people or had any kind of real connection with them well, he was a sexual predator. Uh, it was suspected at the time, but not known for sure. He had already served time for the Albany rapes, but during the time leading up to the uh, chase for him in the speculator area, he had been committing several rapes in Syracuse area. 
Um, he eventually admitted to at least seven of those. So, so there are many of the crimes he could be traced to, but they didn't know until the manhunt began and they began researching further, and he was a suspect in many of those. When is this, and when does the manhunt begin? Well, with Garrow, there were actually a few manhunts, but the principal one was 1973, mm-hmm. and that took place in the speculator area. It ended up lasting, I think it was 12 days. There were nine days there. And despite virtual gridlock on the highways there, he managed to escape to the Mineville area, and it went on for another three days, and he was finally captured. Mm-hmm. And when he was captured, he was he was wounded, was he not? In a Well, I don't know if it was a shootout, but he was uh, wounded by gunfire. Yeah. Right. The order was to, to capture him alive, but they had to make a split-second decision, and one of the officers opened fire and hit him several times. Um, he was injured in the back, in the arm, and in the leg. So eventually he crawled into the woods, and they tracked him down there and captured him. And once uh, captured, he was uh, sent to prison, uh, but the story doesn't end there by any means. No, I mean, in a sense it really begins there because of the, so many huge components to his own story played out. How separately, how he manipulated the entire um, correction system in New York State. And how he fooled everyone, or not everyone, but fooled many people by faking his injuries and using that to get moved to different facilities. And then there was also the, the hidden bodies story where the lawyers were in a lot of trouble. They were defending Garrow, but at the same time had learned that there were other victims and didn't reveal that information until it came out during the trial. And about mid-trial, they were suddenly vilified across the country because they had withheld information about other victims. And eventually, he escaped from jail. Yes, he he first manipulated the system, claiming that he was injured when, you know, I have since spoken to many corrections officers, uh, sheriff's deputies who guarded him at different times, and they saw him exercising, and they knew he was very strong. So they believed he was mobile. But he managed to see enough doctors, it was actually 50 doctor visits in all, about 50, where he moved to different prisons and finally got down to Peekskill, and that's where he managed to escape. And after he escaped, he, he was killed? Yes, there was another manhunt, and it lasted three days, and just before they actually caught him, you know, they realized he could be as far away as Florida or Texas or way up in Canada. Nobody knew where he was, but it was later discovered that it was most likely because of an injury when uh, he was supposedly disabled, but he broke through a fence and climbed a very tall fence in order to escape and uh, they, they injured his shoulder when he fell so he was still hiding on the outside edge of prison grounds and uh, when they cornered him they ordered him to freeze but he stood up and started shooting so this was of course stunning because no one believed he had a weapon hmm. and then they shot him and uh, he was hit at least four times and died and uh, this was in 1978 that he died yes in fact, um, the man that he shot was actually at our event at Fulton County last year. Really? Yes, um, he, he showed up there, really treated like a celebrity, and it's the first time I had met him by email, but it was the first time I met him in person. You know, we posed for some pictures and had a, a pretty good time. And you mean he? this was a man who was there when um, Garrow was killed? or Right, some- when they told Garrow to freeze, he was in some heavy brush. He stood up and fired, and the officer's name, Dominic Arena, was right up front, very close to him, and he was hit. And uh, he really could have died from his injuries, and fortunately he didn't and uh, did manage to survive it. 
Mm. So he was really Gerald's last victim. And it's is it known how many people he killed, uh, Garrow? Well, that's always going to be a subject of dispute. Um, you know, he admitted to four murders, and police officers who worked on the case suspected as many as 22. But uh, some of those I know since then, and I did put um, an addendum in the back of the book, that some of those have since been solved. The, the people who committed those murders are actually in prison and have admitted to them. So some of them would be removed from that list. But because Garrow was killed, we'll never really know how many. Hmm. Would you, I mean, has the, oh, I don't know, the change in attitude of the users or the outdoors people in the in the Adirondacks, has that kind of, quote-unquote, gone back to normal? Or is he, do you think it was forever altered by this uh, episode? Well, a little bit of both, really. Um, many people that I've talked to feel the same way, you know, that, you know, we're not afraid, but we we remember it clearly. We know what can happen, and it's probably best to guard against it by locking your doors. But, but you know, we see when something does happen in the Adirondacks, people might mention they don't, you know, well, we'll have to start locking our doors. Well, it's something I've become accustomed to. Mm-hmm. Terror in the Adirondacks, a book about uh, serial yeah. killer Robert Garrow, written by our guest on The Historians, uh, Larry Gooley. Uh, Larry also writes uh, weekly articles for Adirondack Almanac and New York uh, History Blog. I've, I read uh, quite a few of your uh, columns on the on the History Blog. And you did a, a recent series on a man named Jim Brady. Well, th- there have been several famous people named Jim Brady, but this particular uh, guy was a bank robber and a criminal and there were installments that you did for History Blog on this. Uh, uh, first off, are you planning a book on uh, Jim Brady? No, actually, um, I guess I've sort of been classified. I, I've always written about history, but I've been classified sometimes as a true crime writer. You know, I, I do like those stories, that I did a, 20, uh, a story on 25 diabolical Adirondack murders. So, you know, I'm very interested in people like this, and uh, as long as they are somewhere from Albany North to the Canadian border, I consider them you know, North Country and the foothills, so um, I'll cover their stories, and he is from that area and committed his crimes here and elsewhere. And it's just very difficult to research things like this because they don't brag about what they do, and if they don't get caught very often, we don't know all the things that they've done. So his was a really tough one to follow, but you could find... And the aliases was another problem. But you could track him to different prisons when he was held there, and the uh, the census records help with that. So uh, I just found it. The more I learned, the more I wanted to know, and it was just a fascinating story. Really an amazing guy. I mean, a criminal, yes. Uh, you know, I do point that out. I'm not praising these people, but I'm interested in their stories. Mm-hmm. Was he from Troy originally, or is that where we first hear of him? Uh, yes, and it, it's kind of kind of hard to pin down where he's actually from because his nickname one of his nicknames was albany jim but um but the troy area was cited as as his birthplace and that he referred to it that way so the trouble is he would tell different stories throughout his life so sometimes you didn't know with these criminals what the truth was and he did uh do violent acts Uh, let me ask you did he ever to your knowledge did he kill a person or persons in his life of crime I, I don't believe so. He was involved. He tried really tried to avoid the violent aspect of it. That's why they sometimes refer to him as Gentleman Jim the Burglar, because he would try to steal things but not get involved in all the shootings and knifings that were so common in other cases. So most of the time he, he managed to avoid that, and that's 
probably the reason he became very popular with the press. They'd love to interview him because he had these wonderful wild stories to tell, and it mm -hmm. wasn't really it was less offensive to the public. Yes, and kind of like a confidence man sort of thing. Yes. Would you say? Oh, definitely, definitely. He he explained how. He went up to Canada for a while and just passed himself off as someone very important, and he was treated like royalty, and he thoroughly enjoyed it and laughed about it later, you know. And he did the same thing, um, passing uh, himself as a U.S. senator briefly. So <laughs> it was those types of things that people were fascinated with, and I was too. Yeah. Probably he could have said at the time the Senate was giving him a bad name. No, I don't know what that <laughs> Very good point. Yeah. Now, is he... Um, but he was in the Albany, Troy area, but he, I believe one of your stories was set in New York City. I mean, where were the places? Or maybe you were, or you were just talking about that, too. Yeah, I was following him committing his crimes. He did several crimes in New York State and in New England and in New York City area. You know, he was very famous as a bank robber. Uh, he did uh, some of the biggest robberies in American history, and he was one of the masterminds behind them doing some of the planning. So that's and why I had to follow him wherever he went. And, of course, New York City was a popular popular place for crooks and i gathered from the uh, your last installment that he had a partner in crime a female he was companion or lover or whatever maybe they're even married but uh apparently she finally hoodwinked him or something like that <laughs> yes uh, yeah he he did pretty well in europe with her i remember um you know very successful financially and came back to the states but then apparently she did she turned the tables on him and he eventually returned to New York State after all that happened. He had just and by then, you know, he was getting older, and he had so many interesting stories and um, from prison life and from everywhere else. Just a really interesting guy. Mm -hmm. Kind of did reminded he, me of the old Willie Sutton stories. Did he die in jail or or not? No, it it was kind of. Uh, I'm not sure which installment ran if the last one ran yet. So I would say spoiler alert. But he was finally in. Um, incapable of taking care of himself and he was in this home and uh he just kind of disappeared one day and the suspicion is it was really suicide just uh standing in front of a train mm. we're That's speaking uh, really with uh, larry gooley about his uh, works about the adirondack her his the books he's written and uh, articles uh, he's uh, been doing a series for new york history blog on the criminal jim brady you know maybe one thing i didn't establish what when what time period is, is Brady working in? Oh, gee, I, off the top of my head, I can't really recall. I believe, believe it was the 1800s into the early 1900s. Okay. Um, so many stories, because, you know, part of what you're seeing on New York history, um, some of this has appeared previously. I was asked to write earlier for Adirondack Almanac, and um, the owner of Almanac had approached me a couple of years ago and said, you know, some of these, are so great for his New York history location that perhaps we could repurpose them. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm fine with that. So I might touch them up a little bit. And they're also part of a series of books I'm doing now, and uh, number six will be coming out within a few months. Um, I collect all these stories, uh, kind of a random mix of Adirondack stories like that. Well, and that would be John Warren, would it not, the fellow yes, that puts out the almanac in the blog? Yeah. yeah, I'm really lucky to get to know him. Yes, me too. He's been very uh, helpful to the Historian's uh, uh, podcast as well. And I gather that you also have uh, offered advice because of your success in writing a regional history and, and true crime stories and maybe other, other things as well. Um, you 
kind of been of some counsel and advice to other uh, uh, aspiring writers. Is that so? Anything you want to say about that? Yes, it's actually the uh, the source of our, our business that we've been operating, Bloated Toe Publishing, since 2004. Um, originally was to produce my own books, and as we discovered all the pitfalls and just so many things that can go wrong, that you know we realized this would really help a lot of other people. So we just began helping other people, and it grew into more of a business, and then we were asked so often to help them by publishing, and we knew the ropes. So that's what we started doing, and it's grown into what it is today. Um, and I do sometimes, uh, in place of a history column, I'll write something about uh, the current status of the book world or uh, advice on what to do or how to sell locally, because I'm not a salesman, I'm not a marketer, but these are things I have to do to sell my own work. So I can tell people, be prepared, it's very difficult. It can be done, but it isn't an easy thing to do, and you need to avoid certain things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let me ask you where the unusual name came from. I gather, as you might expect, there's a story as to why you call this Bloated Toe Enterprises. Yes, uh, that really the source of that is my partner, Jill Jones, um, partner and wife, I should say. We, um, we began hiking everywhere across the Adirondacks as I got to know her. And on one of our trips, um, you know, we had this normal thing where I've already been to these and she loves exercise. So we would just hike really fast get to the top of a mountain, strip down and enjoy the sun and eat. And uh, anybody who hikes with me is lucky to have me along because I'm one of these bug magnets. Mosquitoes and black flies just love me. So you'll see a cloud of them around me. And uh, on that particular day, I had been bitten up pretty badly. And, you know, but I'm a hardcore hiker, so we're going down. And this is the first time going down the mountain where I actually had to say, uh, Jill, you know, you need to slow down a little bit. My foot is just hurting so bad. And... We went a little further, and she's still just going right along. So I said, look, I can't help it. I have a bloated toe. So she pointed around, turned around and pointed at me, and she says, that's what we'll call our company. Well, at that point, I, I had no idea we were ever going to have any kind of a company. But when it came time to form our publishing company, I collected some books on the subject, and they tell you make sure you're clear about what it is, like ghoulie publishing or something like that. So instead, we did just the opposite and went with her original bloated toe. So, so we, we do have toe. a little story on our website, and we get asked that very often. I'm sure you do. Now, uh, again, I don't want to get too technical about what it is you do, but it, you're a publishing company, but it's called Bloated Toe Enterprises. Do you, uh, I mean, for an author, do you uh, are you, do you work like History Press or Arcadia, or who are now one down in wherever they are, uh, in, in producing books, or, or no, is something different? Well, yes, we are a publishing company primarily, but um, we included originally, you know, really we were new at this, starting our own business, called it Enterprises because we we had plans to expand to different areas. One was uh, an online store featuring a lot of North Country products. We did have a wider range of gifts previously, but we reduced it. We even had um, Adirondack built furniture, but we're now mostly down to a few gift items, mostly books, CDs, and DVDs. And the other part of the business was publishing for other people, and it's it's picked up different names over the years, like assisted self-publishing, where you might want to publish one of your works, and you come to me, and I do all the formatting and the layout, and I provide printed books in the end, and, uh, you know, take care of a lot of the problems along the way. And added to that, Jill has um, gone into web design. She 
she does the site for the North Country Underground Railroad and um, two other places. She has a Whitehall website, a Line Mountain website. So those services are available as well. So the, the word enterprises really fits it now because we do editing projects and whatever else comes up. Mm-hmm. And, and the, you you know, li- the public speaking you li- thing. I'm sorry, I didn't hear what you said. Uh, the public speaking thing also became a part of it the last several years. We've done a lot of different events like that in um, old theaters and, you know, like we did down at Fulton County as well. Mm-hmm. What is your history of, I mean, you lived in the Adirondacks, it sounds like, like all your life. I mean, where do you live now? Where, where were you from? Well, currently we're living just a few minutes south of Plattsburgh. But uh, I was born and raised in Champlain, which is um, actually our home was almost exactly a mile from the Canadian border. So we're about as far north as you can get. Um, but I, you know, very familiar with Line Mountain, of course. I had written, I eventually wrote two books about Line Mountain, but it's one of the biggest mountains north of the uh, Adirondacks proper. When you get up there, you can actually, you can clearly see Whiteface, and you can also see the skyscraper, skyscrapers in Montreal. So uh, a really neat place to visit, and I just couldn't wait to get into the mountains, and I, you know... I've canoed the length of Lake Champlain. I've canoed in dozens and dozens of lakes and ponds, uh, hiked all across uh, the mountains, did some biking as well. So, you know, I've done a lot of different things and done a lot of repeat things. So I'm really centered north of, on the northern edge of the Adirondacks. Mm-hmm. And uh, your book about Lion Mountain, and I really don't know anything about it, it's called The Tragedy of a Mining Town. Uh, what did they yeah. mine up there? <laughs> and it's amazing that it's, not more widely known, but for a hundred years, they produce the highest grade iron ore in the entire world. Mm. So it's a very important part of regional history and American history. As I write in the books, you you discover how important it was when sources of the best ore in the world were cut off, uh, say from England could no longer get ore from Sweden, they had to get it somewhere else. Well, in Sweden, Danamora ore was the best on the planet. And that's where the name Danamora came from up here in the north. Danamora Prison was built in order to have the prisoners brought up here to mine the iron ore. It was the highest grade ore. So that ore became very important during war, and uh, there are many editorials written back in the 1940s um, promoting the work of these men. They weren't allowed to ever leave their jobs during wartime because the nation needed these for um, missiles and for all kinds of weapons and uh, protective um, protecting the ships with coatings of iron, things like that. So this was the best grade of ore anywhere. It's um, As I wrote, people get more excited when they hear it was used for many of the um, cables that support our bridges, like the Brooklyn Bridge and the Golden Gate, because it was uh, very uh, high-grade and thus very flexible. They could use it to make hoop skirts and fencing and things like that. Has it just petered out, or what, what happened to the... Well, actually... No, it was um, really operating up into the 1960s, and um, the biggest problem was the discovery of a lower-grade ore, but on the surface. This is These are all underground mines. They tunnel here. Back then, they ran down to about 2,300 feet below the surface, and there were miles of tunnels. So it was expensive to get out of the ground. And then in the Masabi Range, when they discovered all this iron ore where they could actually drive up with front loaders right on the surface, it was much less expensive to do, and that really hurt the mines here, and the effect eventually put them out of business. There's still plenty of iron in the ground, though. Well, Larry Gooley, it's been a pleasure talking with you on The Historians. Uh, we talked about a number of your books, uh, one in particular 
Uh, We talked about quite a bit terror in the Adirondacks, the story of serial killer Robert Garrow. We're just about out of time, Larry. Thank you very much for joining us, and you have a good day. Thank you as well.